This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. The best universal definition of a soulmate is feeling deeply connected to another person, but not in a dependent or needy way. Your soulmate is your fellow traveler on the journey of life. You need one another to grow beyond the limitations of your individual selves. The guiding principle in a relationship between soulmates is that needs are equally met because a soulmate relationship should challenge you to move from selfishness to giving. The signs you've met your soulmate are kind of infinite and can overlap with the different kinds of soulmates you encounter in your lifetime. An important truth about relationships is that you have to create love and nurture soulmate connections. Love isn't delivered to us because we believe we deserve it. We must work at being loving and then we'll receive love in return. Valeria Telles interviews Dr. Michael Tobin, the author of Riding the Edge, a love song to Deborah. The book chronicles a six-month transformative journey in 1980 when Deborah, an Arab-American, and Michael, an American Jew, bicycled across Europe, Lebanon, and Israel where they confronted the challenges of love, war, and identity. Dr. Michael Tobin has been a marital and family psychologist for 45 years. He's been with his life partner, soulmate, and wife, Deborah, for 47 years. They are the parents of four and the grandparents of 14. He is the founder of the award-winning website, www.wholefamily.com. Dot com, where you can find numerous articles about relationships. He is also the author of a book on marital affairs. Dr. Michael has been an author and playwright since he was 12, when he wrote a monumental play about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising that had over 20,000 actors on stage at one time. For logistical reasons, it was never produced. On his way to becoming a psychologist, he was a former U.S. Army officer, glacier climber, marathon runner, and restaurateur. He also claims to be the first entrepreneur to introduce granola to Connecticut. Meet Dr. Michael at drmichaeltobin.com and wholefamily.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Michael Tobin. 
in your own words, who is Dr. Michael Tobin? Who is <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, very yes. interesting question. First of all, let's get rid of the well, if you're asking me who is Dr. Michael Tobin, you're already putting me in a professional yeah, true, box. True, true. Because so I don't true. go around introducing myself to the world as Dr. Michael Tobin. To the patients, I'm Dr. Michael Tobin. So <laughs> Dr. Michael Tobin is a psychologist who's been a psychologist for 47 years and is someone who's deeply curious and interested in people and what makes them work, what makes what their struggles are, and how to transform individuals from being perhaps in despair and hopelessness to one in they feel more alive. So that's that's the Dr. Michael Tobin, okay? Michael Tobin is a work in progress. He <laughs> has been for most of his life. He's someone who is, uh, actually, I don't want to talk about myself in the third person, but <laughs> I'm someone who's been curious about many, many things from a young age and been an explorer, been a traveler, been someone who's been, has taken on a lot of interest from sports and athletics and uh, high mountain climbing to writing to a lot of different things. But also who Michael Tobin is, is Michael Tobin is a now a husband and I have been for many, many years to the love of my life. And to say that Michael Tobin is also part of Deborah Tobin, Deborah Riss Tobin. Mm-hmm. I'm also a father of four and a grandchild, a grandfather of 17, wow. all of whom are in the other room <laughs> over there because yeah. uh, we're away on vacation. Yeah. And each who I am in each of those different are different aspects of myself. I'm a, you know, one, very playful grandfather who just loves being with his grandkids and a very connected father of three girls and a boy and um, a loving husband and also someone who life is not always perfect and bl- life is always blessed. It's just mm-hmm. not always easy. Hi. So right now I'm Michael Tobin, who is married to Deborah Riss Tobin, who has Alzheimer's. So that's a, also a part of who I am and what my personal struggle and path of growth is. So I'm a lot of different things. Thank, thank God for that. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a spiritual belief or understanding of life, Michael? Yes, uh, very much so. I, I guess... Uh, I'll, I'll go from the specific to the more general. Yeah. I, I think that I was listening to a, a interview with uh, the great late great Leonard Cohen about a month before he passed away, and the interviewer asked him, "You know, look, you've been somebody who's been on the spiritual path for your, most of your life. You lived in ashrams. Your grandfather was a well-known rabbi from Mont- Montreal. You are identified as a Jew." He said, "In." How would you sum up all of what you've learned from from your spiritual seekings? And Leonard Cohen said something very profound. Don't whine. Now, there's something very deep about that don't whine, which I got, because that's really where I where I see my own spiritual uh, my own spiritual path, which has been. First of all, I'm a I'm a Jew. I'm a practicing Jew. I'm a kind of open minded practicing Jew. Uh, and I guess I look at the world, obviously, I have a lot of faith. I have deep faith and belief and trust in that there is a, an intelligent God who, who is involved in our lives. Most importantly, though, and I think that what goes with that is why don't wine make so much sense? Because when you truly accept the thing that whatever you get, the circumstances that life gives you, yeah. some that are pleasant, some that are 
and you accept that and grow, that's a deeply spiritual path. And I'd like to believe that's that I'm on. Yeah, what a beautiful message. Yeah, learning from what is happening, what is here now, right? I think that's our dialogue with that's our dialogue with God, whatever it is that you wish to call it. The ongoing dialogue is with the circumstances mm. and how we relate to the circumstances. Mm. Do we relate to them as a victim or do we relate them relate to them as a learner, as a proactive individual? How do you describe what love is, Michael? Oh, wow. You say we only have a few minutes to answer <laughs> yeah. these questions. Right. Wow, I can go on for hours and hours. Right, right. What is love? <laughs> well, I think that in a long committed relationship like I've had with Deborah, I met her in 1974 on a dance floor in New Hampshire. And we've gone through many iterations of a relationship over that period of time. So I would say that the love that I felt when I, in the early stages, which was just a a tremendous amount of chemistry and shared interests and fun. And she was also a psychologist, studying to becoming a psychologist. We had a lot of things in common. We came from very different worlds, but we had a lot in common. And I think that that love deepened as we went through struggles, as we went through struggles, got came through struggles as we raised a family and we went through many different aspects of what a deep committed relationship is. I've always felt that she's been my soulmate, my fellow traveler, my best friend. I think in that respect, I've been very, very blessed to have had that kind of relationship. Right. So I think that the most important aspect of love, though, is to give. Mm. I think most of us think that, you know, we deserve love. Yeah. Or that we sh- or our partner should show us love. Right. Well, quite frankly, that's not the path to love. The path to love is at least recognizing that your partner's needs are, are as, at least as important as your own. And yeah. I think that that's the basis of a loving relationship. Because love is about giving and receiving, not taking. Right. And being concerned in little ways about who your partner is, doing nice favors for your partner in small ways, nothing profound, but it's how you build the foundation of love. Love is not just a feeling. Love is a, an active process where you create intimacy. I wonder if, if self-love is a foundation for loving others. That's something that I write about, that I talk a lot about it, and I believe in. Is that something that resonates with you too, Michael? Or no? Uh, yes, a, very much so. I think that that if you do not have self-love, if you do not have a sense of self yes. as a separate individual, then you look at relationships as some, in some way to fulfill the empty spaces in yourself. Mm-hmm. And that then becomes a kind of symbiotic relationship or a codependent relationship. So in order to really give love and to receive love, there has to be a self. There has to be a self that the individual recognizes, you know, I have real value here and I deserve to love and I deserve to give love both. So I think that's an essential piece here. But often what happens, and I see this because I've been doing couples work for a million years, is that people come into relationships with a kind of unconscious contract that the other is going to be here to serve my needs. And when he or she doesn't do that, then everything falls apart. And because that's not the basis of love. The basis of love Mm. is coming from a place of, 
I am a self, I am someone of value, and I have what to give to another human being, Mm, and I have what to receive from another human being. So that connects back to what you said. You can't give if you don't have. So having love for oneself, then it's um, that's a place to give that creates that space. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Exactly. How can you give if you've got nothing to give? Right. right. You can only give if you have something to give. Yes. And if you're overflowing with a lot of good stuff, mm-hmm. then you have no you want to give. What do you think is the purpose of the human experience? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm taking a deep breath at the enormous, you know, the, the, the amount of content that you go into an answer to such a question. But I, to make it as simple as possible, yeah. the, nor, the purpose of human existence is to figure out what your purpose is here on this, li- on this earth. Mm. I mean, I, I, definitely, I definitely adhere to the very well-known, you know, bumper sticker, God doesn't create junk. If God doesn't create junk and you're not, uh, junk. Well, what? What's your? Why are you here? And I think that our purpose in life, you know, from every single moment, which is an opportunity, is to dis- answer that question. What am I here for? If it's just to smile at somebody, or if it's to make a much more, uh, much profound, more profound impact on others. If it's to create something of value. Whatever it might be, whether from small or large, you don't have to be Picasso to have meaning in life. Yeah. And you don't have to write the great, next great novel or be, you know, Michael Jordan. Right. We all have purpose in our small ways and in, in, within our families, within our communities, within, you know, our workplace. We can all make a huge difference. So I would mm-hmm. say we're put here to learn and grow. And there's always more and more growth and learning that we can do. So true. And this relates to what we talk off record that I read on one of your blog posts. You talk about premium happiness, premium mindset. And you say, learn from everyone and every experience, everything. Right. Cultivate curiosity and humility. Develop the art of listening. Be open to learning from life. I love yes. that. Yeah, talk to me for a moment about this state of curiosity, living in a, in a state of openness to life. I love that, though. <laughs> I think that um, there's a wonderful expression, actually. When in my earlier days, there was that wonderful expression from a book called Be Here Now by Ram Dass, which, is, which was, when you learn to listen, everyone's the guru. And in, in our Jewish tradition, in the Jewish tradition, there's a wonderful expression, very similar, which says, "He who is wise, he who learns from each from everyone." So I think that um, again, that openness to life, learning from every single situation. In order to do that, you have to kind of make yourself less. And there's a wonderful expression that the from the Buddha, which is, "To be oneself is to forget oneself, to be open to all things." It's a very, very deep concept. To be yourself is to forget yourself, to be open to all things. Mm. I think we spend so much time being so busy with ourselves and so worried about ourselves and worried about how we appear to others and worried about what other people think of us that we don't live. I think the moment we live is that when we we are so open to the world around us because there's no filter. That we see the things that are right in front of our noses. And, you know, they talk, what's enlightenment? Enlightenment is really having that open moment where you begin to see the world around you, whether it's 
you know, a flower, whether it's a person, whether it's, you know, pain and suffering, whatever it might be, but you see it, feel it, experience. I think that I hadn't mentioned it yet. I'll make a kind of a plug yeah. for my book, which I just wrote, yeah. uh, just, which is called Riding the Edge, a love song to Deborah. And it's about a, a, uh, a bicycle journey we, that we took. It was supposed to be around the world. We never quite made it around the world, although we did go uh, 3,000 miles. Yeah. And it was an extraordinary transformative experience. And in this book that uh, I wrote, I get into that, again, into descriptions of food, of uh, the beautiful you know, countryside, the mountains, the flower, the fauna. And because it's that experience of being open. Right. That was so profound and being able to learn from everything that you see from your own body, your physical sensations, because we were doing we were riding through the rain. We were riding over mountains. We were in all sorts of challenging, inclement and beautiful uh, situations. And uh, we were learning from all of it, from every aspect. And I think that um, that was what I wanted to communicate, because I think that's and that's what I communicate in, in the work that I do, because I work with so many people who don't appreciate what's right before the very noses, that there's so much stuck in their suffering that they can't see the world around them. And that's a very tragic way to live. So speaking of your book, Writing the Edge, a love song to Deborah, what was the intention of writing your book, Michael? I actually started, first of all, it was such an extraordinary experience without, you know, I don't want to give spoilers away. It was an amazing, amazing journey in which we had so many extraordinary serendipitous encounters with people um, that were very, very life-changing. But it was, you know, I, when I would tell people about what we went through, I, you know, 40 years ago, people would say, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. So I actually started writing a book almost, I think it was 1980, 1985 or 84, I started to write the book. And I wrote about, uh, I don't know how many pages, not a lot, but I wrote some. Um, I think I actually started, we had spent time in, in Lebanon also, which was quite a harrowing experience. And I started writing about that. And then I wrote a little bit more. In 1988, I had a, a major publishing house wooing me, really wanting to publish it. They, they said at the time it was, you know, the next best thing since uh, since uh, Zen and the Art of Mo Art, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a very very popular book in the seventies, and needless to say, it didn't get published because the publishing house's marketing department couldn't figure out which box to put it in. So that's uh, the problem with a lot of publishing. At any rate, I put it in mothballs. I came back to it. I put it in mothballs. Only when about nine ten months after Deborah's diagnosis of Alzheimer's that I had this inner compulsion to write this book. In fact, I, all I can say is it kind of wrote itself. And I was, I just had to sort of get out of the way and let the story unfold. Of course, it went through multiple editing, editing process because to write a book, you have to do numerous revisions to get it right. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. And I really wrote it at first for myself and for Deborah because she still still had some memories and this was such an amazing experience that we had and I would write a chapter and then I would read it to her and we would talk about it and she would remember some things and I could see that she was having emotional reactions and it was such a motivation to finishing the book but just to see her reaction and then I started sharing the book with people I, you know printed copies just from for you know just distributed and had some digital copies as well 
And it sort of spread very, very quickly. And from there, I went on to uh, had a few publishing houses that were interested, and um, the rest is history. And um, uh, now it's out there in the market, you know, and people can buy it on Amazon, Riding the Edge, a love song to Deborah. And it was interesting, the, the Riding the Edge part was easy because we were on the edge figuratively speaking. I mean, we had our emotional and physical edge all the time, emotional, physical, and spiritual edge. The love song to Deborah was the kind of arc in this, because even though it's not, I'm not just writing about our relationship, that plays in a significant role here, but there was something about it that made me feel that this is really my personal, writing about her, writing what the, about the, this extraordinary human being this brilliant woman who could look at a map for five minutes and memorize every hill, every bump in the road, every, you know, junction. And these are the days before, you know, before uh, Waze and, and other GPS systems. She had a GPS brain. She was incredible. And I write a lot about her. And I also write about our relationship because uh, you can't you can't do what we did and not have literally, you know, figuratively bumps of the road with the relationship and how we went through some major struggles. One point we, we were very close to the edge of, of ending our relationship, but we got through it. And I write about all this. I think it has a, it speaks to a much wider, you know, group of people than my initial circle of people for, for whom I wrote it. Anyway, I hope people buy it and I hope they'll enjoy it. So another note about your book, 10% of all royalties from your book will be donated to the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you for that, Michael. With that in mind, what do we know these days about Alzheimer's as far as cause, prognosis, um, treatment? Right. I would say that Alzheimer's is one of the saddest medical uh, challenges that we've encountered yeah. It's they've been doing billions upon billions of dollars have been poured into research. Um, again, this is a, a very I can speak a lot about this subject and, you know, some of the science behind it and some of the different theories uh, about Alzheimer's. Needless to say, the major theory is one uh, in which they scientists are trying to attack beta amyloid plaque. That's the white stuff that kind of eats up the neurons of, in the brain. That is, in all cases of Alzheimer's, that is one of the major symptoms, along with other symptoms as well. Right. And much of the medical intervention has been to try to reduce the um, proliferation of beta amyloid plaque. But unfortunately, there has been no medication that has arrested that problem. The only actually medication right now, which has been around for many, many years, is uh, you know is is to increase the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which is helps somewhat in memory. But as far as a cure is concerned, forget about it. I mean, if you think about cancer, my mother died of cancer yeah. in 1965 when I was a kid, and the advance today, if she had gotten that same cancer, she would have survived. She would have been a cancer survivor. There's been so much progress in cancer research, cancer treatment. Alzheimer is the worst case of medical failure. And I listened to a very, very intelligent researcher who's been deeply involved in, in, in finding a cure for Alzheimer's. And he said the best we can expect right now is, is 
our grandchildren will be free of Alzheimer's, that there'll probably be some kind of a vaccine against Alzheimer's, actually. And they're doing some interesting research now, but this latest medication that the FDA, I think, reluctantly approved because they were under pressure has really not had very bullish results at all. It's, it's, a, it's a sad story. It really is. And it's a neurodegenerative disease, which means it's all the time it's degenerating. Uh, what can I say? Yeah. I wish I could be more optimistic about the science right now. It's interesting you use the word sad. Yeah, that resonates true to me that it is sad, especially at the emotional level when we, like in your case, that connection that you have with Deborah, and then we talked uh, briefly uh, off record. So if you can talk again about it, that um, how does it feel emotionally uh, losing that connection with that person, the identity that you once knew? Have you found new ways of connecting with her at a different level? Uh, I think the, that's a very good question you're asking. I mean, let's first of all, you know, actually, I just wrote an article that I'm submitting about this sort of process of loss that I experienced in, with Deborah, and then actually pretty much follows the, you know, as I wrote it, I realized it's following very much Elizabeth Kubler Ross's four stages mm. of loss, which is yeah. uh, denial, anger, grief, and acceptance. Yeah. Uh, so I believe I went through all of those stages. I remember in the beginning, I would do things that I will never do now, which is correct her when she would make a mistake, being impatient. It was very hard for me at first to accept the reality of, of this diagnosis. And I, you know, I wasn't coming to this as a stranger. I'm a I went, one of my early jobs as a psychologist was working in Hahnemann Hospital in Boston as a gerontologist, as a in ger, you know, working on a ward of Alzheimer's patients. So I knew back then in 1983 how horrible Alzheimer's was, and I had experience working with families of Alzheimer's patients. So uh, as I said, I, I came to the, I wasn't a stranger about any of this, right. and I, in fact, in some respects, I knew too much. And that was pretty terrifying. So I was definitely in denial nice. in the beginning. And then I could experience the irritability, the anger, and then the, the mourning process. You know, my best friend, my someone who we could talk about anything from how to help our grandchildren sleep through the night, help our children help their children sleep through the night, yeah. to deep philosophical concepts it's multiple different things. We were tremendous, tremendous partners, intellectual, emotional partners. And she had a very high emotional intelligence and could really intuit people's feelings and emotions. And she was a great mother and a wonderful grandmother. Mm -hmm. And I saw all that slipping. She would forget the children's names. She would, grandchildren's names. And and less and less interested in spending time with, with grandchildren, more retreating into her own world, and became significantly less communicative, was, could still listen. And interesting thing enough, interesting thing, interestingly, for someone who was never, ever kind of, would I say, in any way dependent at all, it was a very independent person, She'd be much more dependent on me right. as well. And in some respects, in a kind of sweet way. And I switched to being more of a caretaker as well yeah. in a lot of ways. And we actually now have a full-time caretaker um, who helps a great deal. But emotionally, I feel a kind of sweetness and connection to Deborah. 
that has not it's it's changed but it's very very deep we just recently spent uh three weeks traveling to southern parts of the states from we actually from connecticut to west virginia where she grew up to atlanta georgia where her sister lives and we probably traveled maybe about a thousand miles and many many hours in the car i drove she doesn't drive and I don't know how many words we, we spoke to one another because Deborah doesn't speak much, but I felt a tremendous sense of bond with her. Mm-hmm. I can't, I, it's hard for me to explain it. There's yeah. something, you know, we're just, we're just deeply connected to one another and that hasn't changed. So, but yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to pretty up the picture. Right. Uh, my heart goes out to anyone right. who has a loved one with Alzheimer's, whether it's a parent, whether it's a, a sibling, whether it's a spouse, whatever it may be, it's a very tough thing, situation. And you need a lot of support. I'm also fortunate. I have a great family. I have wonderful friends. Uh, I have a lot of support. A lot, a lot. I wouldn't be able to do it. And I have my work, which gives me a great deal of satisfaction. I interviewed somebody recently. Her husband also had Alzheimer's. He's no longer here. But she said something very interesting about that, yeah, everything you say is so frustrating, the suffering, the pain. But then towards the end, she found something interesting. She said, I would look at him almost as a tree, nature itself. And that silence, it was as profound as looking at a river or the ocean. And just being around him felt like being merging with nature. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, she said it that way, in a very poetic way. And right, it sounds right. very spiritual, um, too. So I guess I want to respond to that is, on the one hand... I don't want to be, you know, Pollyannish about all this. You know, everything is beautiful and wonderful because that would not, that would be unfair to the people who are connected to uh, Alzheimer's patients. On the other hand, I would say, because I have a similar experience, that, again, it depends upon the Alzheimer's patient. Deborah happens to be, was always a very peaceful person. And in Alzheimer's, she's still very peaceful. So I'm not dealing with, some of the things that some people deal with, which is a violent outbursts, yeah, right. um, the anger, the rage, the irrational behaviors, yeah. there's none of that by her. So I'm very, very, we're all very blessed because of that. Right. So in that, because of that, I would say I have similar responses. I feel that kind of connection. I feel like we're, I can just be with her and it's very comfortable, even if we're not talking. Okay, so... Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone experiences, um, yeah, Alzheimer's the same way. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I know many people who have met people who've had really, really rough experiences, and my heart goes out to them. It really does. Thank you for your message. Thank you for everything, Michael, your presence in this reality. I have lots of questions. The time we almost at the end. So many things about your work that it's... uh, caught my attention. There's something you say about aging. I'm now 72. I am 21 with 51 years of experience. (laughs) That is uh, beautifully said. So what is your message about aging? Well, first of all, I will say this. I am 21 now with uh, 54 years of experience (laughs) because today is my 75th birthday. Yes, yes, yes. True. I didn't know that. So uh, Happy birthday again on record. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And I have 27 people waiting for me to continue my birthday party. I think that that aging is a fallacy 
unless you unless you stop learning, when you still feel like you're a work in progress, when you still have new frontiers that you wish to to reach, when you have new parts of yourself that you want to develop, then you're young. Then you're filled with aliveness, aliveness and energy. I think that when you stop being curious, when you stop growing, then it's over. The game's over at that point. So I hope, you know, however, however many years I have in this world, I hope right to the end I'll have the strength to keep on learning something new and uh, relating to people in a fresh, new way, living the moment and being very fully present. That's to me staying young. Yeah. And you can be old when you're 21 or you can be young when you're 75. Mm, so true. Yeah. Yeah. It's a billion times to that. Michael, thank you for saying that again. <laughs> it's a reminder for all of us. So we're almost at the end. I do have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. Before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Well, I don't have my book here to read, so I'd have to open up my computer to the place where I have a But um I would. There are plenty of excerpts on my uh, website. Uh, even better than that, go to Amazon and 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 purchase "Riding the Edge," a love song to Deborah. But also, there are many articles that I've written that are on my website, yeah. and, which is www.drmicheltobin.com. M I C H A E L Tobin T O B I N, and there you can. Either order the book, read as many multiple different articles on aging, on relationships, on fitness, on travel. I, you know, I write about a lot of different things. I've been in many different places in the world, and I share a lot of that on that website. Yeah, I love so that website. I encourage people to do <laughs> yes. that. Thank you. Yeah, it's Thank a you. wonderful place yeah. to learn, and I'll have the links on your podcast profile. You have another website too, which is wholefamily.com. Yes, wholefamily.com. So I'll have those two links on your podcast profile. How do you define true power? What is to be powerful? To be autonomous, to be real, mm-hmm. authentic. True power, I mean, it's very interesting because I've been talking a lot about, there's a, there's a lot of issues and discussions these days about what power is or powerlessness and yeah. what have you. And I think the true power really is, is when you know yourself. Because that's the kind of power that doesn't come with needing to control others. Mm. Quite the contrary. It's, it comes with a desire to connect with others. But again, it goes back to our question before about you got to know yourself first. That's where the power lies. When you have a, a very mm. deep sense of who you are, what you feel, what's important to you, then you have personal power. And with personal power... You really can change many, many things, especially if it's the good kind of power. It's not the power I said, which unfortunately we see in politics, which is a, yeah. you know, a power of divisiveness. Right. It's a power of I'm right and you're wrong, right. and proving the other side you know, their position. You know, it's a it's positionality and tribalism. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that kind of power. I'm talking about real power, real spiritual, emotional, psychological power. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? That I wasn't the center of my universe. That's yeah. the hardest thing. I think that I started out life because I had a lot of, I had a, you know, I was pretty talented as a kid. I had a lot of abilities in many areas. I was very full of myself. And it took uh, a lot of challenges in life 
to teach me that, you know, the world doesn't revolve around Michael Tobin. And that that was the hardest thing, which is just giving up a lot of ego. And I, I worked very hard turning success into gratitude rather than ego. Mm-hmm. And I'm that's you know, I'll continue to need to do that for the rest of my life, which is to turn whatever successes I have in life into gratitude and not into I'm great, I'm wonderful, I'm brilliant. That's been my struggle. Wow. What a so everyone has their own struggle. Ah, what a beautiful message, turning success into gratitude. Yeah. Uh, I love, <laughs> I have to say love a thousand times <laughs> to these things. Uh, thank you again. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure? Number one is I don't know anything for sure. That's the <laughs> yeah. first thing I know for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the second is I don't want to, if I start thinking I know anything for sure, I'm in deep, I'm in deep trouble. And the third thing is embrace uncertainty, which means not knowing anything for sure. Sorry, I kind of flipped your question. That's, yeah, well, you think true to yourself, to what you know, to be true within, yes. At 75 years old, I can say, I know a lot of stuff and I know nothing, so... Uh, This is a crazy world we live in Mm. with lots of challenges. There's so much that we don't (laughs) know um, and understand. And you know what? It's what makes it interesting. It really does. And that's where the growth comes. The growth comes from uncertainty, not from certainty. It's in situations where we don't have answers and we learn and grow. If we have answers, how do we grow? We've already got, there's nothing to, there's nothing new to learn if you know everything. Right. So, I'm happy to say that uh, I I know some things, but there's a whole lot of stuff I really don't know. And that's great. <laughs> yeah, that goes back to you, your message about the space of openness, curiosity, just, um, yeah, learning, being this eternal learner of life. Thank you so much again, Michael, for your presence. Pleasure. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to talk to you. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. We'll be in touch for sure. You're welcome. Okay, be well. You too. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Michael Tobin and his work, please visit drmicheltobin.com and wholefamily.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.